It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's here. It's officially election season. Day one was this past Tuesday, the day after Labor Day. Although, let me tell you this, I was down at Carolina Beach this weekend, Sky. And I saw political ads during almost every commercial break when we were watching network TV, which mainly we kind of still watch the news even on holiday weekends, full of ads. The U.S. Senate race, you've been seeing ads for the Bud Beasley campaigns for, what, three months now? Yeah. But I was seeing ads for General Assembly races. There was an anti-Michael Lee ad, Senator Lee, who, by the way, has been on the podcast. I had heard that the Democrats are spending $1.2 million to unseat Senator Lee, and they spent a lot of that $1.2 million this past weekend. But the flag has been lowered this Tuesday. It is a sprint from here on out to November 8th. And we saw some polling this week that kind of sets the stage for this election season. On September 1st, High Point University put out their latest poll, and it has a lot of interesting numbers in it. So top of the poll, top line poll that got people's attention is that Governor Cooper is at a 44% job approval rating. Now, 40% usually is the threshold by which if you're below 40%, you're usually taken on water. If you're above 40%, that's all positive. So Cooper was that top poll getter as far as favorability. But number two was Donald Trump at 42%. And then Kamala Harris at 37%. And then Elon Musk pulled above Joe Biden and Mike Pence. A lot of folks who don't work in politics seem to be confused. Like, how could Donald Trump win North Carolina in 2020 and 2016 and Roy Cooper is the governor? Well, North Carolina has a long history of zigzagging through who they like and dislike. I remember Jim Hunt had favorabilities. Jesse Helms had favorabilities. Two politicians worlds apart politically. But in the 1980s, both polled high. Going down ballot, the congressional generic ballot was tied. And I think that is interesting. It kind of goes to bolster that poll we talked about a couple weeks ago that had Bud and Beasley tied. The congressional side also tied. And just a reminder on that generic ballot, they're simply asking voters if you want to vote for a Democratic congressional candidate versus a Republican congressional candidate, who would it be? They don't name names, just political parties. Something else that I think was really interesting from that, they pulled for the General Assembly, and that generic ballot had Democrats at 3% in the Senate and 2% in the House. Democrats were polling better than Republicans. Shocking. But in contrast to that, more than two-thirds, 69% of the people polled said the country is on the wrong track, of course, led by Democrats. So very interesting the way that these folks who were taking this poll responded. To me, my big takeaway on that General Assembly generic ballot is Democrats seem to have dug themselves out of a hole that they were in two months ago. They're still not out of the woods because if we go back to that 2010 race, Democrats did have a slight edge on the generic ballot, but they got walloped at the polls. There was a CNN article that ranked North Carolina number seven and likely to flip seats. And that is specifically talking about the U.S. Senate race. Yeah, number one is Pennsylvania. 
retiring Senator Pat Toomey. CNN had predicted that that seat could flip to the Democratic Party. And, you know, they go through Nevada, Wisconsin. Down number seven is North Carolina. They put Sherry Beasley. I won't say it was a strong, this is going to happen, but they certainly put Sherry Beasley in the game. And it was ranked number seven. So even though it is in that top 10, seven is still pretty low. As that race heats up this week... We have seen some new ads come out. Like I said, you have been seeing these ads every time you turn on WRAL or your local news. You're seeing Beasley Bud ads, but today there have been some attack ads come out, and I think you're going to see more of those churn out as we get closer to the election. So a 501c3 national organization founded by former First Lady Michelle Obama called Vote.org announced that they are going to spend $10 million to engage young voters in this election. And they listed North Carolina as one of their target states, really showing the importance of North Carolina in this election being a purple state. Talk about how this nonprofit entity would be able to play in our elections. Specifically, a nonprofit that receives tax deductible donations. A lot of folks in the political world are familiar with 501c4s or PACs. And if you give a donation to those groups, you don't get a tax deduction. But if you give a donation to vote.org, it is tax deductible. So here's how these groups operate. And we have them here in North Carolina, 501c3s, which refers to the IRS tax code. These organizations don't target political parties in getting out the vote and doing voter registration. They target communities. So that allows them to kind of slip through a little loophole so that they can qualify for those tax-deductible donations. So what you'll see is vote.org will go to heavy Democratic precincts, communities, towns, counties, and they will get out the vote in a blanket way, but they won't target this door's Republican, this door's Democrat. They'll just go into a community, do a blanket blitz, and then come out, and that allows them to technically be nonpartisan. The other thing they do, Sky, is they don't use the words vote for this candidate or vote against this candidate. It's one of the many ways we are seeing dark money in our elections in 2022, and it's really been something that's building since Citizens United back in the late 2000s. You know, tying a bow on something we talked about last week, I kind of made a prediction about what the North Carolina State Board of Elections was going to do. It wasn't wasn't a gamble by any stretch, but I did get it right, and we got news confirming it Friday afternoon. That's right. A completely partisan vote, what we expected, and Valerie Jordan will stay on the ballot for that Senate district. One of the curious things that came out of the news last Friday was that there is an appeal that they can make to the court. So the S- Senator Hannig could appeal this to a court. 
But I don't think they're doing that. Mm -hmm. They just have that right to appeal the courts. I don't think they're doing that. And I think that they believe that the amount of publicity they got on that, they would rather her stay on the ballot at this point. And that's going to be their message. Mm -hmm. Now, I was thinking about it over the weekend. Valerie Jordan defeated Senator Ernestine Bazemore in that Democratic primary. And the issue in that primary was that Valerie Jordan was saying that Senator Bazemore did not spend enough time in Raleigh, (laughs) that she had missed about half her votes. Now, in fairness to Senator Bazemore, we heard that she's been ill. But yeah, kind of interesting that uh, the Hannah campaign is saying that Valerie Jordan is spending too much time in Raleigh. Moving on to our favorite part of the podcast. Yeah. People are loving unsubstantiated rumors. Yeah, we're sort of reporters, so we're just reporting the facts as we hear them. (laughs) We don't report the news. (laughs) (laughs) After we talked about some of the rumors we're hearing in the attorney general's race in 2024, we had mentioned Amy Gailey, Tom Murray. We got a text message from a legislator who said, here's what's being talked about. So the full Democratic slate that is rumored to be propped up right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. is obviously Josh Stein for governor. Senator Sidney Batch, she's been on the podcast, for lieutenant governor. Then for attorney general, this is something that I want to say you reported back when he dropped out of the U.S. Senate race, Jeff Jackson for attorney general. Yeah, I think I'd forgotten that when I reported AG rumors last week. The play is, is that he wins this congressional district 14. Redrawn. And then he runs for AG. You know what? Speaking of that, I want to know that I was scrolling Twitter and I saw this guy's tweet and I was like, oh, is that Jeff Jackson? And I zoomed in and it was Jeff Jackson's opponent who is wearing the same blue collared shirt tucked up to the sleeve, very Jeff Jackson like. And then I clicked on his page and really a lot of similarities between the two. Jeff Jackson, he likes to wear that Best Buy uniform (laughs) (laughs) wherever he goes. I think he has his combat boots on. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently he's running for AG in 2024. And then your last two candidates are your steady hands in the Democratic Party. Elaine Marshall for Secretary of State and Beth Wood for Auditor. Yeah, all have been on the podcast. But let's go back to this AG race. What's the race you want to see in 24 for AG opposing Jeff Jackson? Who, who can take him out? I know you want me to say Danny Britt. I'm thinking Jeff Jackson gets in. Whether Danny Britt can afford to run for AG or not, I think this is one check he puts in the why he should run column. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. A little friction at the general I think no matter what, Danny Britt would run a campaign against Jeff Jackson, whether or not he's running. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we appreciate this inside track. What do you think of Sydney Batch running for lieutenant governor? It's an interesting choice. Now, she's in a tough Senate race in this election cycle. She's down in southwestern Wake County. It's a tough race. Guess she needs to survive that in that kind of, or maybe not. Maybe she doesn't. But uh, she would make a formidable lieutenant governor. I don't know why. Here you go again. This is what Brian tells everyone. I I can tell you're about to get up on your pedestal and give a speech. So go ahead. 
you know, the lieutenant governor used to have a lot of power in North Carolina, but people don't really realize this. There's a lot of criticisms thrown at Republicans for taking power from the executive branch. But when Jim Gardner won the lieutenant governor's race back in the 80s, Senator Tony Rand, who was on the ballot for lieutenant governor that cycle, he stripped all of the power that the lieutenant governor used to have. It used to be that position was what we see the Senate pro tem having. That power was stripped, given to the Senate pro tem. I don't know. Just doesn't seem like a position that's that's worth running for. Of course, Beverly Perdue made the transition from lieutenant governor to governor. Jim Hunt, lieutenant governor to governor. Are you done? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was doing something else. I've heard it so many times. This week, we had the pleasure of sitting down with our first interview with someone in the judicial branch. Court of Appeals Judge Jefferson Griffin stopped by the office, and we had a great conversation. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Judge Jefferson Griffin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Glad to be here. To kick us off, maybe the average listener doesn't know who you are. Tell us who you are and what your day job is. So I am a associate judge on the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, we have 15 statewide elected judges on that court. We sit in panels of three. Um, we do have uh, the ability to sit on bond, which is all the judges together. Um, we haven't done that for a full case yet, but we're, oh. we're, uh, I'm sure it'll, it'll happen sooner rather than later. Um, but I grew up in uh, Nash County, um, so about 45 minutes east of here in Raleigh, uh, small town, Red Oak. Uh, I grew up on a uh, family farm there. Uh, my mother was a school teacher for over three decades uh, in the public schools, and my father owned a small business there. I uh, went to high school at Northern Nash. Uh, I, I drove by home yesterday, and with the, the cool air, uh, I almost wanted to drive by the high school and, and uh, see if I could put the football pads back on. <laughs> I was getting excited, but I uh, went back home to visit Dad for a minute, but he still lives there on the farm. Um, went to Northern Nash for high school and went to Chapel Hill. Uh, for undergrad. Uh, between undergrad and law school, I, I got my captain's license and charter fish for a while over North Carolina coast and traveled. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, everybody's like, you you left being a charter fisherman to go to, uh, <laughs> go to law school. What's wrong with you? And, and my response is, it's, it's not an easy way to make a living uh, day in and day out. If every day was pretty uh, on the ocean, it would be a different story, but some of those take a toll on you. So uh, I left fishing, went to law school at North Carolina Central. From there, uh, my first job was in Kinston, North Carolina, a small town um, east of here. Made a lot of good friends. I was there for about two years. A lot of good trial experience. I uh, did criminal defense, civil defense, a little bit of everything that came in the door. And I uh, had some great mentors there. And, and from there, I left, and Colin Willoughby hired me in the Wake County District Attorney's Office. And so I prosecuted cases there for five years. I ran for DA and lost. Hmm. Um, learned a lot from that experience. I had this in my head that I was going to be the elected DA and then be Attorney General. And uh, every time you have a, some, you know, plan like that, God laughs at you. Um, so that didn't work out, but there was a vacancy on the district court bench. 
Uh, I pursued that. I was appointed by Governor McCrory um, in 2015, stood election in 2016, ran unopposed, and um, yeah, I've run both opposed and unopposed. Unopposed is fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a great, if you have yeah. the choice. Uh, and then uh, and then I'm on the Court of Appeals now, which is uh, statewide office. And yeah, we're like I said, there's 15 of us, um, and uh, we get to sit in those panels of three. I have a awesome wife, uh, Katie, who's also an attorney. Uh, and we have a newborn son. Well, he's, he's a little more than newborn now. He's seven months old. Uh, and we are uh, officially Carteret County voters. Okay. Um, we're back here for work a lot, so we're back and forth. But uh, we, we made that move about a year ago. Is that from your fisherman days? Carteret? It is. Okay. It is. I, I spend a lot of time in Carteret County and uh, have a ton of good friends down there. And, uh, and we just we love, we love being down on the coast. How often do you get back? Um, you know, we're... We're pretty flexible, uh, probably about half our time down there. Okay, yeah. So I want to go back to the football. What position did you play? I was a center, uh, defensive end, and a linebacker. You played both sides of the ball uh, every we did day? Play, we did play both sides, yeah. It was, uh, and we were at a big high school. It was 4A ball. I mean, we played New Bern, Rocky Mountain, mm-hmm. Elizabeth City. It was funny. I was talking to somebody the other day. It's like in Raleigh, they all travel so closely now. And we'd get on the bus and go to Elizabeth City for <laughs> – Seemed like half a day to get up there um, <laughs> and, the, and the activity bus. Uh, but some of the greatest experiences I've, I've had in my life, actually most heartwarming <laughs> campaign contributions from, from one of my uh, judicial races from my offensive line coach. Is that right? A Grover battle back home. Uh, yeah, that was, that was really special. So we're, we're still friends. You also have some military experience? I do. I joined a little bit later in life. I joined the Army National Guard as a judge advocate uh, in 20... Uh, I guess 2017 is when I joined, and I, I uh, when I went to my basic training, they they they, I, they called me Lieutenant Judge right out of the gate because they were like, <laughs> "You're a judge? Why are you here?" And I, was, I was like, "Well, this is something that I've, I've felt very passionate about doing my whole life." And I, when I left Carolina, uh, I I was signed up for OC, Marine OCS, and then I tore my ACL and had to have a reconstruction. And then that, that sent me down the fishing path. Okay. But, uh, okay. but it was, it was getting near the time where I needed to either do it or not. And, uh, I was blessed to be able to have that opportunity. And then in 2019, 2020, I deployed with the, uh, with the 30th armored brigade combat team to the middle East, which is our big combat arms brigade in North Carolina, you know, about 4,200 soldiers. Um, so I was with the headquarters element there. I was a national security law attorney. So rules of engagement, law, war, um, any of the operational stuff, uh, I served in that capacity in Iraq and Kuwait, Jordan. Um, so served with a lot of great North Carolinians and, uh, still, still doing it today. So growing up in Nash County, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? As long as I can remember, I, I remember about first grade, uh, we were doing this project on the, the top of the Berlin wall. And, and I just have always been fascinated with American government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love my home, uh, and this was kind of a good fit uh, for me. I was like, you know, how can I help the most people? How can I make an influence in our state? How did you make the determination to fish first, especially yeah. if you were on this path? I'm, I'm intrigued now. I'm bought in. <laughs> my grandmother uh, built a house on the waterway down in Brunswick County across from Ocean Isle Beach for, right after Hurricane Hazel, so most of my childhood trips were uh, driving the back roads before 40 and everything all the way down to, you know, Clarkton and Roseburg all, all through there. And 
we'd stop in Elizabethtown and Melvin's all the time and get cheeseburgers or hamburgers. They didn't have cheeseburgers, uh, hamburgers on the way down. And so I spent a lot of time in the, in the intercoastal waterway and the creeks around Shalote and Ocean Isle Beach. And so I always loved salt water. I loved being down there. Uh, and my dad took me fishing a lot when I was young, very fortunate and, uh, and decided I was going to give it a shot, uh, before, I before I mm-hmm. put the hammer down and went to law school. So let's turn to the courts for a second. I think a lot of folks are very familiar with the North Carolina Supreme Court. And I think a lot of citizens have had at least some interaction at district court. Can you explain the Court of Appeals and its role within our court system? All the trial courts have a right of appeal to us. Everything comes to us except for capital murders now. They go straight to the Supreme Court. So anything from district court, anything from superior court, uh, bench trials there that have a right of appeal, all the jury trials that comes through us. And we probably resolve high 90% of all the cases at our, at our court. The only way you can get a case to the Supreme Court uh, through us is if one of our judges dissents on a panel. Uh, we sit in panels of three, so if one of the judges dissents, they can, uh, they can ask the Supreme Court to look at it and they have to take it. Or uh, the Supreme Court can take it on discretionary review. They have to vote to bring it up. I'd say our docket consists of probably 50% criminal cases, 20% family, domestic stuff. Also, we get everything from administrative hearings, workers' comp cases, other constitutional issues. You know, we had uh, some of the Leandro stuff filtered through before it's made its way up to the Supreme Court now. Sometimes they take it away from us, but most of the time we get first shot at it. You stated earlier this is a statewide elected office. Talk about how you make the determination or how do you campaign for a judicial race? Going statewide must be difficult. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, it's hard enough for a traditional statewide candidate, you know, legislative or executive. At least they can tell you what they're going to do for you or what they're not going to do. Uh, we're like, well, I'll follow the law and I'll uphold the Constitution. And they're like, well, what else you got? A lot of it is one educating them what we do because you know some most people know what a district court trial looks like or that their idea of what a, a jury trial looks like and they're like oh you're, you're like no that's not it we we just look for errors we we're bound by a lot of what they do at that level and uh and we're just look, trying to fix fix problems and uh fix errors and they're like oh really <laughs> that's mm-hmm. i never thought about that so yeah. you have to educate them about what it is you do um, why it's important to them and then why you're the best person for the job. And without giving them any idea about how you're going to rule on a particular issue. Right. So it, it's challenging. And then, um, you know, that meant you know, it was 7 million voters and you got to communicate with as many as you can. Um, and you know, fundraising is not exactly the, the most you know easy thing to do as a judge too. It's, it's, it's a, it's a weird dynamic. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's the same thing that applies to other statewide races. It's just harder. I mean, you get a statewide candidate, whoever it is, you get to say, what's your position on this? And that legislator can say, well, I'm for that or I'm against it. You are bound. You can't really show your cards, right? You can't say this is how I would rule on this case if it was brought to me. Exactly. And you wouldn't want to do that anyway right. as, as a judge or a judicial candidate. Right. Um, what we can talk about is our backgrounds, um, what we did in the profession, um, our judicial philosophy. Uh, those are all things that we can, we can definitely talk about. And, you know, <clears throat> with their debate back and forth about what's the best selection method for judges. And, uh, I, you know, I travel conferences around the country sometimes and, and talk to judges in other States and 
only thing that's consistent is that there's no, there's no one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a different system and there's pros and cons to both. And I've, you know, I've run in a partisan race and run in a nonpartisan race. Um, so that there's, there's pros and cons to both sides. How do you describe your judicial philosophy? I describe myself as an originalist, okay. more, more originalist. Um, you know, a textualist, I'll look at the four corners of the document. When, when I'm talking to folks, I'm like, well, it's kind of like having a foundation of a house. Like you can't go in and move the foundation without some serious work, right? right? And we have a way to do that. It's called a constitutional amendment. But if you start trying to move a foundation with piling stuff around it and moving things out from the side of it, um, which is what I would say a, a, a living document interpretation mm-hmm. is, then you, know, you end up having inconsistent precedent. And, and you have rights that are just created out of nothing. And as we've seen, um, another court can just take them away. So walk us through, like, what is your day-to-day like? Um, I have three staff, three full-time clerks that I keep in my office, which are fantastic. To work backwards a little bit, we have a very uh, regimented uh, order with which we take on cases. Uh, and in my chambers, we'll start about 10 days out. We'll talk about it, see where we are on the case with, my, with the clerk who I've assigned the case to. Um, and then as we get closer, we may start drafting, depending on the complexity, depending on how I think the rest of the panel might vote on the case. Uh, as we get closer, we might even put some significant drafting into it. I mean, we're basically writing two-term papers a week at the pace that we do it. Yeah, you know, I've been on the court uh, since January of 21 and written over over 100 opinions. Wow. So we we crank them out. We're, we're, uh, we, we res- like I said, we resolve a lot more cases than the Supreme Court, so it's it's a lot of reps over and over. So we, we try to keep it going as fast. And if there's things that we I think we can agree on and, and get moving quickly, uh, we'll do that. And then we'll have our herd date. Not all our cases are uh, have oral arguments. Um, yeah, maybe two or three per calendar of mm. 15 uh, that we'll have oral arguments. So we do that here at the Court of Appeals. We'll travel. Uh, we go to law schools and have, uh, have remote sessions there from time to time, just depending on availability, which is fun. It's fun to get out and do that. I've read a few books about the United States Supreme Court and kind of their process of how they go into a private room, just the justices, and they kind of hash out the opinion. They have uh, conferences, I think it's called, and a lot of tradition around that. When you're hearing a case or considering a case, do you huddle up with the other two judges on the Court of Appeals to talk through the case? We do. We usually get 15 or, or so cases per calendar, sometimes 12. And after we ha- if we have oral arguments, we'll go in conference after that and talk about all of them on our calendar. And, you know, that's where we decide. A lot of our court's seniority-driven, so whoever's okay. head of the panel kind of sets the, the agenda for that. If we all agree, that's great, which is what happens most of the time. Most yeah. of them are unanimous. But if we don't, we might have to reassign an opinion to somebody who was assigned to write it if they're in the minority now. And then they they turn their uh, their draft into a dissent. Our our goal is to always be unanimous. Okay. Um, yeah. It, just sometimes we don't agree. What do you think is the most obscure law that we have on the books in North Carolina? The most obscure. Wow. Um, we actually just I just was checking on an opinion we had. There's going armed to the terror of the public, uh, uh, which is which is very interesting. Uh, and we've I was on a panel with. Uh, Judge Dillon and Judge Dietz, and we three usually agree on most things. Um, 
but this time it was a, a question of whether whether a public highway would, would qualify uh, within a, a piggly wiggly parking lot <laughs> so for some for some old case law. Anyway, so that that one's at the that I'm tracking that one now. It's at the Supreme Court, so okay. I, I think they'll agree with me. Uh, there was a, they, a Supreme Court case had uh, had stated that the piggly wiggly was good enough for a public how, street or highway. So. I said we were reading it too too tightly, um, so that'll be interesting to see. But that that one's at the top front of my mind. One point for working in the piggly wiggly. To <laughs> yeah, <this podcast. laughs> that's right. But you bring up an interesting point with your answer. I know when I talk to attorneys, they tend to be sectioned off according to their expertise. It could be real estate. It could be criminal. It could be housing law. It seems to me, as you describe, not only your day and the decisions that you're considering or the cases you're considering, you have to know a lot about a lot of things in order to make a decision. Our court really gives you an opportunity to, to get across um, different fields of the law. Like I said, people can appeal to us and we can't turn it down. Right. I mean, we, we got to hear it. Uh, so we get all kinds of stuff and, uh, and it does, it makes you, makes you a lot deeper in your knowledge. I, I mean, yeah, I did a lot of criminal law. I was a prosecutor for five years. I was on the district court bench. So a lot, and, and just because we're on a panel doesn't mean you can't go talk to other judges. Like within our courthouse, you know, we're, we're collaborative. So if I have a property case, I might go talk to Judge Dillon about it because he's, you know, he was a, a property attorney. And so he may have some perspective that, that I don't. Um, a lot of people come to me for criminal law stuff. You know, Judge Dietz was a great appellate lawyer. So any, any rules, uh, procedure, yeah, you know, before he joined the bench, like we'll go talk to him. So we, I mean, we all work back and forth, and uh, it, it definitely makes you better. And I've, I've, I've looked at areas of the law that uh, I definitely didn't think I ever would pick up. I <laughs> haven't served on the court of appeals. You said that your original plan was to become the DA. You wanted to be an elected official. What made you want to get into politics? I remember in sixth grade, I won the, uh, the class election because I wanted the winner got to go see uh, Bush, uh, President Bush traveling around that he made a campaign stop in Rocky Mount. And then uh, I had an eighth grade civics teacher at Nash Central High School, Mr. Bradshaw, that was phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember he was, even at that point, he was straight down the line. Like he had no, no political agenda. He uh -huh. was just, he was just throwing government at us and it was awesome. Yeah. And uh, so I've got to be a nerd political nerd thing, I guess. Have you thought about running for other offices, especially if you're so interested in government? Have you thought about the state house or Senate or a different judicial seat? I'm going to run for the Supreme Court in 2024. Wow. Um, I've gotten a lot of good support there and, and went ahead and once these guys clear the clear this battlefield in November, uh, we'll be, be going at it full speed. It's something that I think I'll be very good at and I've gotten the proper support and I'm excited to be able to hopefully serve in that role. Big debate within North Carolina politics about should certain positions be appointed? Should they be elected? We've talked about it with the Council of State. It's also crept in a little bit to judicial races. Do you have an opinion of whether you should be appointed by the governor or the General Assembly versus elected directly by the people? Um, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I'll tell you some of the pros and cons. Like as, as an elected judge, there's some places in North Carolina that may never meet a judge, mm. but for us running for office. And I mean, and that's the truth. And if, if our, you know, 
if a goal is to say, I want you engaged in this process, I want you to feel like, you know, we're real people, not just sitting over there in that, that court of appeals or Supreme Court building, then I think it's good for us to be in, in touch with those folks and not just kind of camp out there. Mm-hmm. That's one, that's one pro con is, is the money spent. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, the independent expenditures, the, the public confidence are, are we being bought, right? Is that the, that's the, that's one of the cons. Um, but whatever happens, I think we had a constitutional amendment proposed in 2018 and the voters rejected it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, a lot of that's going to be how you phrase it probably as they, as a lot of those are, but I don't think you'll find, uh, North Carolinians give up their right to vote anytime soon. Since you have been an attorney and you were working in the DA's office, do you feel throughout your lifespan you have seen judicial races and that just the judiciary itself become more politicized? Or do you think it's always been that way and maybe we're just shining a light on it more now? Uh, I think there's always been an element of politics. Like I said, we've always been elected. Yeah. So, I mean, it. I think I've kind of compared it to, I'm not... You know, old old historian here, but in 2010, when the the General Assembly switched over mm-hmm. control, that was that was an institutional change. Yeah. There were there were things that were done differently now, and so the courts, um, from my perspective, have gone through uh, a little bit of an institutional change within the last couple of election cycles. And when people at, start asking why do we do it this way, is there maybe a better way? Yeah. From an administ- just an administrative standpoint, not even talking about your, your particular judicial philosophies and, and how those mesh together. But I think some of that has has bubbled up as well that you know, there may be a different way of doing things. And um, change, change is hard for a lot of folks, even if it's positive. I'd like to talk about the relationships among the judges at the Court of Appeals. One of the misconceptions I think the public has about the General Assembly is that Republicans hate Democrats and Democrats hate Republicans and they're always fighting. But if we were to go down the General Assembly, we see friendships and civility and we see folks enjoying each other's company. Can you give us a little peek behind the curtain about what it's like to serve with 14 other colleagues that have varying degrees of judicial philosophy? No, it is fun. And we we generally get along just fine. Yeah, I think I think since COVID, uh, the dynamic of our court, which used to be all together all the time, that's one mm-hmm. of those things that's kind of changed. Um, you know, since I since I joined, it was funny. We're, there's four trial court judges who are you know we're used to being on the bench uh, nine to five every day to work. Right. So we all showed up on I guess January fourth was our first Monday. We all showed up you know ready to get on the bench and and start going. So. Yeah, and we look around and like, yeah, nobody else is here right now. Um, <laughs> but we were, uh, it was just, it was a different mindset for for us coming in. And, and um, but but overall, we're getting. And some of my best friends are on the court. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Fred Gore and I were, you know, we're in the Army National Guard together, and mm-hmm. so we already had a pre-existing relationship. And uh, Chris Dillon's chambers right next to mine, so we're we're in and out all the time. I'd say some of it depends on how much somebody's around. Mm-hmm. But we, we all get along fine, it, and and we have to to work. The bottom line is we're there to do the pe- the work for the people of North Carolina and and be serious about our jurisprudence and and make sure we're putting out the best product possible for the practitioners, but more importantly for the, the people of North Carolina. When we write an opinion, I want you know I want a non lawyer, somebody right off the street, to be able to pick it up and say. Okay, I might not get everything, but that makes sense. I understand some of the, yeah, that's that's our goal. Again, I'm not an attorney, 
But I love reading the opinions of the court. And I find it interesting when I could read the prevailing opinion and I think, okay, that makes sense. And then I read the dissent and I say, that makes sense. It must be an intellectual experience to have high legal minds debating very complicated issues. Am I right? Oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. It's uh, it's really fun. And then you start adding in, you know, our, our clerks on each side, too. Right. So you've got you know, all these lawyers collaborating. And, and, you know, my goal is to hire the smartest I can. Right. So, you know. My, my clerks, I, you know, I want their input. I'm sure the other judges want their clerks' input. And I tell my clerks, too, I don't want yes people, like, challenge me. Right. Tell me, you know, if I'm off on this or, uh, you know, I want your opinion. So, now nah, working closely with them has been very rewarding. So, I asked you the obscure law question. I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the thing that just the average citizen, the average North Carolinian doesn't understand or maybe gets wrong about what judges do? I think they they don't think of us as just normal people. We have young children. We have a family. We we grew up in the same place. You know, we grew up in a rural area. We grew up in a city. Whatever it may be. You know, worked on a fishing boat, something like that. You know, I think people people think that we all went to like Harvard, whereas we're you know, the majority and are just North Carolinians trying to make home better, um, trying to hone our craft and and make our law law better. So you listen to the podcast, you know, this is coming. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today, maybe it's in the judiciary, maybe it's not. What would your one thing be? My one thing in our judiciary would be that every judge signed every order that they put out. I know that seems like we would already do that, but I I would love for all of us on every decision we make to put our names and our votes on it. Can you give us a little context there? So our petition panels, which are emergency hearings and state, you know, at request for stays and, and, and that kind of thing, um, have traditionally been just not disclosed. Hmm. So you didn't know who was sitting on these things. And when I joined the court, I thought that was kind of strange hmm. because I've been a trial court judge and I put my name on everything that I wrote. And, you know, I was, I, for better or worse, I did it because that's that's my job. And so I found that was weird that we didn't do that. So we have gone to a system now. And I don't know why it only goes back to March 31st, but as of March 31st, after 90 days, you can go back and uh, search for the particular panel or that that petition and see who was on it. The reasoning there is that nobody will judge shop for these things. So that's that's what I've that's the traditional answer to why we have not done it. But I'm of the opinion that we put our name on everything and how we voted on everything and if you're worried about political pressure or you're worried about putting your name on something um for judge shopping then you in my opinion you shouldn't be a judge anyway if, if that's something that if that's something that worries you enough uh that it might influence you then you probably are not fit for this job anyway well judge jefferson griffin north carolina court of appeals We appreciate everything you do for our state, everything you do for the judicial system. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. I'm uh, really excited that I got to do this and I look forward to your, your future podcasts. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Not to brag, but look at us, we're making news. Judge Griffin announced during that interview that he will be running for the Supreme Court in 2024. We didn't know he was going to say that. And so we're here making news. (laughs) Let's do our tweet of the week. (laughs) Yeah. Tweet of the week. Okay, this week's tweet of the week. As I said last week, y'all have gotten less funny on Twitter. So maybe check yourself. But... (laughs) This week's tweet of the week is from William N. Finley, the fourth, and it says, it's real, I made it up. He's at WNFIV on Twitter. You might remember him from the Hulu show on Firefest. He did attend Firefest, and he was in that documentary. He likes to tweet a lot of inside the Beltline stuff. But last night, there was a city council meeting in Raleigh, and a resident went up to speak, and he decided he would bring a walk-up song. <laughs> and so he played <laughs> Eminem. <laughs> and they told him to stop, and he announced, he can't be here, but that is Eminem from Detroit. <laughs> um. Stop the. the okay, he can't be here, so I'm not going to bring him here. Um, it's Eminem <laughs> from Detroit. Um, he wanted us to talk about affordable housing. It says a North Hills resident just tried to play Eminem's Lose Yourself while speaking to the city council. You know, we talk about this all the time. Everyone should have walk up songs. I agree. What's your walk-up song? I'm sure you know what it is. I, I think I'd like it to be Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. If it wasn't Sabotage, it would be Short People by okay. Randy Newman. I, <laughs> I will say a couple things here. One is that when I was making the little video for the interview about you, mm-hmm. I wanted to use the song by Toby Keith, I Want to Talk About Me, <laughs> because <laughs> that is you. <laughs> what would be your walk-up song? I don't know. What do you think it would be? I think it would be one of the Lizzo songs. Is it your birthday, girl? Because you looking like a present. That one? (laughs) Yeah, that one. Because it is my birthday. It (laughs) is your birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. Thank you. Another year of Brian getting me terrible gifts. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say that my gift giving improved this year the same or worse? I don't remember what you got me for my actual birthday last year. You keep referencing Christmas, but I don't remember what you got me for my birthday. Do you? I don't. (laughs) So it couldn't have been. It was not very memorable. Yeah, I can't remember. So this year I got you a vacuum cleaner for your car. You already had one, Mm -hmm. I learned. I got you a couple t-shirts you don't like. Really, either I'm not going to wear like a shirt that says some like weird quote on it, but yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I got you. I think that's like sort of a boomer thing. Like you wear like just the girl against the world. <laughs> right. I got you a light for the toilet bowl. I thought that would be nice. Yeah. That just is kind of weird to me. I don't know. But you know, you walk through the bathroom yeah. and 
the light comes on in the toilet. Yeah, I said I did remember a few years back that was like a really popular gift. It was like one of the top sellers on Amazon. I really was the most optimistic about that. But we ended up, you like the game. I like a card game. I love a card game where you have to ask the other person questions, like learn about their life. I make Brian do it with me all the time as if we don't know enough about each other. But I have learned plenty of things about you from those games. So I got you the game Analyze Me. Yeah, great gift. I said that was an A+. Okay, and I did write you a card. 10 out of 10. I love a handwritten note. So the card, and what I said to you afterwards is what I appreciate most is that I know you spent so much time thinking about what to get me, which is very sweet and endearing. But our listeners know this because weeks ago we're on the podcast and I'm talking about all this great stuff that you do for me on my birthday. I mean, look at this podcast studio we're sitting at my bidet that's the gift that keeps on giving day after day okay after i don't day. think people want to know more about that all right well anyway I'm, I'm gonna keep trying and one day you're gonna say brian you nailed it you nailed it thank you yeah well until then happy birthday i'm also convinced that brian does a thing where he knows he's getting me gifts i won't want so that he can send them back not have to buy me anything else and then he's really like clean on the gift giving out no money i think that is the goal fiscal we love a fiscally responsible king i am fiscally responsible but you remember at christmas i refused to send back those gifts the furry birkenstock shoes yeah i remember the eye massager No, the eye massager we sent back. The feet massager? (laughs) The foot massager I did give to my friend who was pregnant. A re-gift. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really a re-gift because you knew about it. Yeah. And I told you I would give someone the shirt, one of the shirts you got me today. I think you should give one of the shirts to the homeless people. I think we really do need a homeless person walking around in a really... You've done that before. You've given gifts. You've just put them out on the stoop and (laughs) given them to people. I have done that. Are you doing anything special for your birthday weekend? So every year, my friend and I go on a little trip, just a long weekend, and we're going to a wellness resort this year. So Friday to Monday. That's a nice tradition. I I have to say, I'm I'm a little, maybe a little envious, kind of impressed, because you've done great trips. You've been gone down to Florida. You've gone to Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great tradition. It is. It's really nice. We collectively decide what books we're taking so we can swap books, read by the pool. So we take like, you know, five, six books and trade them out. The best part about going on trips with her is that, you know, we work out in the morning, we hang out for a bit, and then we don't have to talk the rest of the day. We can just sit there in silence and read. That is... A luxury I do not get in your presence. (laughs) 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 yeah a good traveling companion that makes all the difference like being able to sit in silence that's good what are you doing for my birthday i'm leaving for concord on thursday evening i'm speaking to the southeastern tourism association's annual conference they're down in concord this week and I'll be on a panel Friday morning. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm actually going to be on a panel with other lobbyists from other states. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's going on in Tennessee and some other places. Can't take time to celebrate when you're a star. Yeah. you got to keep it moving on the road. That's <laughs> right. But, I, you know, I get to hang out with NCTIA, the North mm-hmm. Carolina Travel Industry Association. They're a sponsor of this podcast. And 
get to hang out with Vince Shalina. He's the executive director and a weekly listener to the podcast. So that's going to be great to hang out with him. I'll be thinking of you, though, and you, you usually send me text messages, kind of letting me know what's going on. You, you guys have great time on those trips. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. We know it's been a short week, but there was plenty of news this week. And we will talk to you next week. We're sure there will be more election time news to talk about. And as things heat up this election season, please remember to do politics better.